there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ever been ringside and got blood on you? All the time. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was really embarrassing. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, we're weak in boxing. You've got uh, old guys coming back, announcing comebacks. Uh, pretty good heavyweight fight this past weekend. you got Manny Pacquiao uh, back in the news. To talk about all that, I want to welcome in Corey Erdman, BoxingScene.com. Does a great job as a blow-by-blow man for ESPN+, Plus, multiple other outlets as well, and making his debut here on the Boxing Podcast. What's up, Corey? Hey, not too much. I know we're uh, we're divided by a border and potentially for a long time. So I, I'm just happy to see you virtually, Chris. Yeah. I, I'm used to seeing you every week. I'm like the I am the Toronto Raptors right now, just away from Canada. Not <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm the Tampa Raptors at this moment, far, far away. Um, all right, there's there's a lot I want to get into here, but I got to get into the the strangeness of the beginning of this week, where you had some big fight announcements. And they're only big because the names are big, and the names are also old. You had Oscar De La Hoya announcing he was going to come back on July 3rd. That was followed by the out-of-nowhere leak that Miguel Cotto and Juan Manuel Marquez, two 40-plus former world champions, multi-division world champions, were going to fight in an exhibition. You also have Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., fighting Anderson Silva in something. I don't know how that's going to go. And that's going to be on the undercard of his father, Julio Sr., who's going to do another exhibition match uh, down in Mexico. Um, You know, I wrote this week over at SI.com that, I mean, look, retired fighters wanting to fight again and coming back is not new. I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard did it four times before he eventually was sent into retirement by Hector Camacho. But it seems to me that there's a lot more of a surge of it now that this is 
this is becoming a real thing where, you know, Del- Tyson kind of started it back in November, and now we have De La Hoya, and now we have Cota Marquez. Uh, you know, and it wouldn't surprise me in subsequent months if we see more 40-plus, 50-plus-year-old fighters coming back in and getting back into the ring in some capacity. I guess let me ask you this in a broad sense. What, what do you make of all this, this, this surge in retired fighters announcing comebacks? Well, I, you know, exhibitions involving retired fighters is, has never really gone away. I mean, Chavez Sr., who you mentioned, will headline that card with his son fighting Anderson Silva. He's been fighting in exhibitions very regularly since he retired. And, and even going back way, way further, there was a time when the heavyweight champion in the world fought on more exhibitions than he did in real fights. So that part isn't new. But I think there is something to the times that we're living in that is leading to this surge in popularity of these types of call it old man fights you look at what has been popular entertainment wise just broadly because boxing is entertainment it's a sport but it's an entertainment medium as well i think the currency of nostalgia is higher and more valuable than maybe it's ever been we've all been locked down for a very long time we're longing for happier simpler times and you look at the things that have been popular over the last year, year and a half, things like the, the versus battles, where you basically get two older musicians, you pit them together and people debate online about who had the, the hotter songs or Disney Plus launching and everyone gets excited because they can watch their favorite cartoons again. I think this is just kind of a continuum of that, where people are longing to see those fighters from their heyday and just getting Mike Tyson in the ring or Oscar De La Hoya in the ring, People are enjoying that again. Yeah, but yeah, I of think course, they just course, want to like, see these guys. I, I saw, like, like, I mean, look, I, I get that, right? Like, I mean, God, I went to Tom Petty concerts, like, up until the day he died. Like, so right. I get it that there is a desire to to see a familiar face, uh, in, you know, whether it's virtually or in person. But, I mean, the big difference is, like, I mean, Snoop can hearken, he hasn't lost his vocal fastball. Like, he can still right. perform at a high level, much like DMX and any other guys that were, were part of those uh, those great versus battles. You know, these old guys getting into the ring, I mean, it's a totally different ball game here where they're just going to be out there. Some of them may be trying to pulverize each other. Now, the Tyson Jones thing, um, you know, that, that 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 wasn't too dangerous for anybody. Mike, Mike was clearly pulling his punches in that, even though Roy, look again, been an equinox in about, you know, six years. So <laughs> I just I just wonder, I mean, is it is is it the fact that exhibitions have now become more lucrative. Like, before, I mean, Tyson did that whole exhibition. It wasn't even a tour. It was announced as a tour, and it was oh, one yeah. fight back a year after he retired. Like, the Corey just, Sanders yeah, fight when he's in the T-shirt. And yeah, he, you have yeah. To remember, yeah. He had to go back and remember which Corey Sanders it was. Like, initially, I remember <laughs> thinking it was, you know, the heavyweight title holder, briefly, Corey Sanders, not the other Corey Sanders. Um, right. What, like, is it just the fact, though, that these, like, Tyson kind of proved that exhibition fights can actually draw in big numbers, at least if you're a big enough name? I, I think so, but I think that there's a there's a distinction between Tyson and then probably everyone else. I agree. And I'm interested to see where Oscar kind of falls in those rankings because Tyson has a particular allure when it comes to pop culture. And I think that people are particularly delusional when it comes to Mike Tyson. I, there were people even after that exhibition who said, huh, you see Tyson out there? Put him in there with Anthony Joshua and see what happens. And that's completely ridiculous. But there, there's a grip that Tyson has on the boxing public and I think the general public that other fighters don't have. But I think that he set a trend 
that fighters, other fighters want to follow. And we're seeing it with other kind of gimmick fights, right? We see the Paul brothers stepping in the ring. Well, now there's lower level versions of that. Zab Judah has his own celebrity boxing promotion with lower, lower tier influencers and celebrities, and they're going to fight. So it's the start of a trend and everyone wants to see if they can even make a fraction of what those guys made. Do I think that Cotto and Marquez are going to do 1.25 million? Of course not. But I think that they're going to do something. They're going to make a little bit of money and probably not be in a whole lot of danger. I think that you were probably in more danger against Marquez when you sparred him than Cotto will be. I mean, that's actually correct. I was in a lot of danger <laughs> at certain points of that three-round fight. Um, I, I do agree with you, though, that you know, old man boxing is not a thing yet. It, it could be a thing if the next six months are successful for the Del Hoyas, the Kodos, and whoever else decides to lace them up once again. But right now, the only proven commodity is Mike Tyson. And, and you're 100% right. Tyson is unique. He is not only this legend from yesteryear, the guy that was pancaking opponents for most of the 1980s. He also has become this pop culture icon, whether it's through appearances on the Hangover movies or the podcast that he does now or various commercials that he's been in. He has become kind of this likable figure over uh, the last couple of decades, which, you know, and I think when, when it came to his fight, I remember asking different people, different generations of people, you know, would they watch it? And you had an older generation of people that were like, man, I remember the old Mike Tyson. They had, already, they had forgotten about Kevin McBride, Mike Tyson, and, and the Mike Tyson that was just getting beaten down in the latter stage of his career. They were wondering if we'd get kind of a, a resurgence of, you know, the guy that was destroying fighters in the 1980s. Then there was a younger generation that grew up without Mike Tyson, that only knew what they saw on YouTube videos. I remember Ryan Garcia, I think it was, tweeting about this, saying, I never got to see a Mike Tyson fight in person. So Tyson is unique in that sense. And I think it will be interesting to see if De La Hoya against, like, MMA Fighter X, which is probably the mm. most likely uh, scenario for De La Hoya, or Cotto Marquez, two guys that had big fan bases in their day, but were not the magnetic figures, or even close to it, that Mike Tyson was. I'll be very interested to see if there is an audience for these types of guys basically having eight-round sparring matches. You know, I, I don't think this will be the end of the road in terms of guys trying it, because one of, one of the realities of boxing is that fighters, and we're talking about elite fighters here, elite fighters hit the peak of their marketability and their earning potential after their prime. It, basically, in the last you know six, seven fights of their career is usually when they make the most money. And we're talking about guys, elite fighters, who go out in and around the top, not guys who kind of come back down the mountain. So guys are, you know, they end like a Miguel Cotto. His last paydays were all, what, $10, $20 million in some cases when he was promoting himself and pulling in big figures. So the last paychecks that he remembers were pretty big, and that wasn't that long ago. And so you're going to see guys who are thinking, hey, maybe I can come back and make even a fraction of that. There might be a market for it. So I don't think that this is going to be the end of the road in terms of guys trying but we may have seen the peak of it with Tyson versus Jones. I would say this. If De La Hoya, you know, followed through on his rhetoric and decided to fight like Gennady Golovkin at 160, that would be a massive pay-per-view. That oh, would yeah. do like 1.5, 2 million pay-per-view buys. Or if it's on DAZN, it would do a record-breaking number. That that would still be massive. But I don't know what the audience is for De La Hoya versus, you know, the equivalent of Ben Askren that's out there. I just don't, I, I don't really uh, ultimately see it. The one other side of this, Corey is like, yeah, should modern day boxers be embarrassed by this? Like the fact that like 40, <laughs> like 40 plus year old guys are coming out of retirement 
And they're going to, they're doing bigger numbers, both pay-per-view and otherwise, than active fighters. Like this to me, like the fact that there's an opening for these types of fights and fighters to exist is a real negative reflection on the state of boxing where you just you just don't have enough big fights. You, like there's an appetite, and I've always said this, there is an appetite for a great fight amongst casual sports fans. If you put a great fight on, whether it's Spence versus Crawford, uh, you know, Joshua versus Fury, any of those big fights that we know are out there. You put a big fight on and the mainstream audience will come. It will support that fight. But there hasn't been them. And with that has created this vacuum that guys like De La Hoya are trying to step into. Uh, if I'm a fight active fighter, I'm kind of looking at this and saying like 48-year-old Oscar is going to, you know, kick my ass in, in revenue. Like maybe that tells you something. Yeah, and I don't want to say that that's an indictment on the fighters necessarily. You know, you, you brought up Spence Crawford, and that's a, that's a current example of a big fight that we want that hasn't yet happened. But I, I don't I don't see it necessarily as something that boxers should be ashamed of. So no, no, much no, no, as no, 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 no. Let, let's do you know this. What let's I mean? be, like let's the, do this. Let's do this. Let's do like, this because this is good. Let's do this. Let's do this because yes, it is an indictment on boxers because they do not work. Promoters and managers work for boxers. Boxers mm -hmm. do not work for promoters and managers. Every time we give boxers an out and say like, well, we couldn't get a deal done. You know, Al Heyman and Bob Arum couldn't make a deal. Issue with my management and their management. We couldn't track down who the hell represents Manny Pacquiao. Like every time something like that happens, I get a little grayer on the sides of my head because these guys... Like I take it, take us back to last weekend or two weekends ago now when we were at when the, the the Terrence Crawford was ringside for the fight with Mo Hooker and Virgil Ortiz. Errol Spence was there. One of the things that killed me was that Errol Spence showed up a little bit late because my goal was to get the two of them you know face to face in front of each other. And I don't care if people are in my ear telling me to to break. I, I was not leaving that that discussion until we had some kind of clear resolution as to why this fight wasn't taking place. So I look, I'll let you finish, but I just fundamentally disagree with the idea that these fighters should skate. They are, you know, individual contractors, independent contractors. They can make decisions. We can't let them skate by saying it's not my fault. No, of course. But, but what I'm saying is that the sport is in a very different place than it was. It's not as mainstream popular as it was in the 80s. And, and, and you know, what we're talking about here, we keep referring to Spence and Crawford. And I agree, that is a, a particular scenario where it seems that both fighters could be doing more to make that fight than they are. I, I will absolutely give you that. But they're also operating in a sport that isn't as popular as it was in 1995 or in 1985. But why is that? Not why say, is that? Like in your mind, why? Why is that? I think that there are a lot of answers to that. I think that in, in a lot of cases, when I talk to people about why they don't watch boxing anymore, the most common answer I get is because they find it hard to follow. And the coverage has kind of waned a little bit. It's not in newspapers anymore. And this, this is all cyclical. And we could say it's not covered anymore because it's not as interesting it's as a it chicken once in, was. It's a chicken and the egg thing. You know, it's a chicken and the egg thing. Of course. So we could go around and around, but I, I will say that not every fighter should be ashamed for how popular that they are or aren't right now because they're not operating in the same sport that guys did in the past. Now, could there be a boost in popularity if we consistently got the best fights all the time? Of course. 
But I think that it is true that there has been a gap in terms of mainstream crossover stars, with the exception of Mayweather and Pacquiao and Canelo, is this generation's exception. There hasn't been one since the era of Oscar and Tyson, basically. And that is an indictment, I think, on the sport and the construct of the sport more so than on any one individual fighter. Look, I think it's on all the fighters. I think the reason that, and you're right, look, the sport has become hard to follow in a way because of fragmentation, because these sanctioning bodies are just awful, awful places. Um, but I do think that you had fighters in the 1980s, let's start with the Four Kings, that just decided, you know, they were going to fight each other. That, you know, Leonard decided he was going to fight Duran and he was going to fight Hearns and, you know, that he chased down Hagler after avoiding Hagler for a number of years. Like, you just had these guys fighting each other. You just, you're never going to be able to, like, and I'm not saying you would believe this, but I'll never be convinced that if you spent the next five years making the best possible matchups month after month after month, that you won't get boxing right back into the mainstream, right re-injected into newspapers and magazines. The reason that newspapers don't cover boxing anymore is because the audience doesn't give a shit. Like, they just don't. They don't. There's no interest in, you know, fighter, you know, A-level fighter versus D-level fighter. Every time there's a big fight, and you know this, you're at many of them. Every time there's a big fight, the New York Times hires a freelancer uh, to go and cover it. Uh, the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal will cover it. All the LA papers will cover it. Sports Illustrated will send either me or Greg Bishop, sometimes both, out to actually cover it. It's like if you build it, they will come. If you build, if you if you put together great shows uh, consistently, you will get boxing right back to where it was. The problem is, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, and and even if we started doing that, like how long does it take before it reaches that same level years. again? It, you know, it, it it takes years, right? It's not it's not an immediate fix to make any one particular big fight, and then suddenly we're going to start getting mainstream coverage. And it's also not to say that the fighters that you mentioned before, I mean, the four Kings were four generational talents that all came up at the same time in the same weight neighborhood, but that's not to say that Ray didn't pull some stunts on, uh, you know, and we're, we're friends with Ray, so we can say this, but he hosted a press conference and, and basically told Hagler he was going to make the fight and then retired while Marvin was, was sitting in the audience. So 84, yeah, 84, 85. Yeah. yeah, Can you imagine if Errol Spence did that right now? I mean, like, so it, but they were operating in a time when the sport was popular enough to make up for those misdeeds. And the fighters today just don't have that luxury anymore because it just isn't popular enough. You just, I mean, look, you're right about Leonard and Hagler. And, and I've had this conversation on this podcast with Ray about you know, all that happened uh, back then. Um, but like, it, it seems like we're just like waiting for that one Spence Crawford matchup that's probably going to happen when both their guy, these guys are in their mid to late 30s. At least in the 80s, while we didn't get Leonard versus Hagler until 1987, we did get prime Leonard versus prime Duran. We did get prime Leonard versus prime Tommy Hearns. We got Hearns versus Hagler in one of the best rounds in boxing history and one of the best eight minutes you'll ever see in boxing history. So it, it was more like there were a couple of exceptions to guys not fighting as opposed to the rule. Now, the exceptions are the rule in boxing where you just wait and wait and wait and, and get one fight back, you know, well past these guys' primes as opposed to you know, three or four good ones. So, Well, and I think a big reason of that too, we talk about fragmentation, network fragmentation is a, is, is a big problem when it comes to that because promoters are aligned with networks and these fighters are their currency and they want to hold on to them and an undefeated fighter 
is currency for, for these people. And, and they don't want to let that go. And by wagering one of your fighters, wagering one of your assets, which is effectively what it is, if you're a promoter and you put them on the line, that's a big risk. And when, when you have four or five networks kind of competing with one another, I think promoters are less willing to take the risk than any fighter ever is because you'll never find a fighter who will say, I'm afraid of someone. Never. But a promoter is certainly afraid of wagering that asset. Yeah, and this is why I would love, you know, Spence and Crawford get together at a restaurant and they FaceTime Bob Arum. Does he have FaceTime? I don't know. You FaceTime Al Heyman, though. I don't think right. he has FaceTime either, but whatever. You get everybody on just like some <laughs> kind of video conference and say, guys, we're going to fight each other next. It's up to you to make a deal. I guarantee you there'd be a deal. Like there would be a deal. If both guys were united and, and figured out, like, look, it is a 50-50, 55-45, whatever you want to say type of fight, you would get a deal done. So th- that, that to me, I want to see fighters take more responsibility uh, for their actions. But a conversation to start with old man fighting guy to the state of boxing. We veered yeah, of way course. off course on that yeah. one. Which, yeah, well, they, they just need to meet courtside like Mayweather and Pacquiao, right? Exactly. That's how that happened. Because that's right? how that fight came together. And and don't forget <laughs> yeah. the waiter. Don't forget the waiter. He's He's got to be involved. A very key part of that, yeah. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, last weekend, we had Dillian White uh, reinsert himself into the top of the heavyweight picture. He knocks out Alexander Povetkin uh, in four rounds. I want to get into White's future, but first, I mean, Povetkin, I don't know what was going on with Alexander Povetkin. He didn't look right, and 
you know, I know White, you know, kind of joked or accused Pavekin of not having COVID prior to that fight. Pretty clear to me, you know, from as a layman's opinion, I guess, that, you know, whatever, however serious Pavekin had uh, COVID-19, it seemed like it was still affecting him. He did not look like the fighter that we saw that first time around. He wasn't great the first time around. He was on the verge of being knocked out in the fourth round of that fight. But he was on shaky legs really from the first round on when he wasn't getting hit with that much clean. And then the fourth round comes, he gets bombed with a left hook and he gets out of there. So I guess give me your reaction to how that whole fight played out. Well, that's the elephant in the room here. I mean, I know what Dillian White said, but from what, what we understand, Alexander Povetkin was hospitalized with COVID-19, not just once, but twice. Twice this fight had to be postponed because Povetkin had to go to the hospital. He was in the hospital initially with COVID-19, tried to resume training, and then had to be hospitalized again. So that's a very serious situation. And and a a 41-year-old fading heavyweight could, in theory, age overnight. Like, we've seen many fighters with less serious afflictions show up one day and they aren't who they once were. But... For a 41-year-old to have gone through what Povetkin went through, I think it all starts to track. And it wasn't just in the ring, but people who were in the bubble in Gibraltar, they were remarking that Povetkin was kind of looking off, that he was confused at times. Just anecdotally, when I was walking, watching him walk to the ring, he kind of looked low energy and, and, and frail and pale. And then he got in the ring. And as you described, his balance just wasn't there at all with every shot. And even when he was throwing his shots, He really only had one thing that he was trying to do, and that was slip to the outside and and throw a big left hook, and it was never landing. So I think that any evaluation we have of Dillian White in terms of how he looked, you have to really take into consideration the fact that Povetkin was not the same Povetkin. And even after the fight, you know, it it was kind of a, you know, it was a sweet moment when you see White take a stool over and, and, and sit Povetkin down and give him some water, you know. It was, it was a sportsmanlike moment, but to me, reading into it, it looked like a guy saying, hey, I, I'm sorry. You know, you, you weren't the same guy, and I understand that. that. That's what I read in that moment. So I think that even Dillian White understands that the man he got revenge on in that fight wasn't the same guy. So all that being said, were you impressed with White's performance? I mean, he, he did look at times like the sloppy fighter that we've seen for much of his career. One thing we often forget with Dillian White, or some often forget, is that he doesn't have this deep amateur background. He's been kind of learning pro boxing, real boxing, uh, on the fly. No no offense to kickboxing fans out there. I guess Marcus of Queensbury rules boxing. Uh, He's been learning that on the fly. Um, It gets the knockout. What was your reaction to how White looked in this fight? Well, I think that even despite Povetkin's condition, I thought that there were things to take away from White's performance that were impressive. For example, uh, I thought that he was throwing his jab more frequently and with a little bit more conviction. And I also thought that his demeanor in the ring, his willingness to go for it against a guy who, and he didn't know what Povetkin was going to look like, but from the bell he was looking for the knockout and he was aggressive and he was willing to kind of do that kind of uh, high wire act that big punchers can do where they lay it all on the line and either get knocked out or score the knockout. And that's what makes Dillian White fun. And I thought that at times earlier in his career, there would be a switch that had to be turned on with Dillian White where he'd go through the boxing motions, but then decide, oh, hey, I'm a puncher. I can knock anyone in this division out. I hurt Anthony Joshua. I've beaten three of the best heavyweights, three of the top 10 heavyweights, according to Ring Magazine, he's beaten them. 
And he didn't wait for that switch to go off. He fought like a fighter who felt like he was in a desperate situation. And that could be a very dangerous fighter, I think, to other heavyweights right now. Yeah, and look, it's pretty clear that in his next time out, Dillian White wants a gimme. Like, he's had a rough road with top opponents. He kind of deserves a lesser tier type of guy. Uh, So that will probably be summer, early fall. And then you look at where White fits into this heavyweight picture. If we assume that Fury and Joshua can come to an agreement on this two-fight deal, find a location, get some dates set, the heavyweight titles will be out of reach for the foreseeable future. Usyk will get his hands on interim one that'll eventually make him full champion. So uh, he'll have his own path to carve uh, after, if he wins uh, that version of the title against Joe Joyce. Um, So where does that leave Dillian White? I mean, like most people, I'd love to see Dillian White versus Deontay Wilder. I mean, that is bombs away in the heavyweight division. Two guys, one with a incredibly potent straight right hand, the other with a monstrous left hook. It's like whoever lands first probably wins that fight. But do you think we're once again in that space where we're wondering, are politics going to stop a fight from that kind of fight from happening? Or do you think Wilder is, I don't know, I don't want to call him desperate, but if he's so anxious to get a big payday against a top-level opponent, he would look to a Dillian White. I think it's more on White to kind of White and Matchroom to kind of make that decision because they understand that White is a little bit vulnerable and that he could go in and face Deontay Wilder and he could get knocked out and then there's no shot at a heavyweight title and then we're talking about Dillian White kind of falling down the mountain a little bit and facing people on his way down. So maybe they look for a route where Usyk winds up with an elevated WBC title and he fights him and gets an actual crack at the title. It'll be it'll be down to them in terms of how long they're willing to wait. I'm with you that I think the most exciting fight in terms of pure action that could be made in the heavyweight division right now is probably Deontay Wilder and Dillian White. If we're just talking about hold your breath, two concussive punchers going at it, that's about as good as it gets right now. Yeah, Fury Joshua is, is obviously the best fight, but there's something kind of, you know, I don't know. Uh, perversely enjoyable <laughs> about seeing these two guys in there with one another. But I, I think it's on white. Like, what does he want to do? Because there is a big payday there with Deontay Wilder, but there's not a title. And are you okay with that? Yeah, I, I think that white understands the landscape. I mean, look, even if the WBC restores him as the mandatory challenger, which I don't think they're going to do, but even if they did that, they're not going to order a you know, white challenge until Joshua and Fury sift through their business. And if they did, they'd probably elevate Fury to franchise champion like they are want to do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating the opening that way. And that's not really a heavyweight championship. So I think if you're Dillian White, you're just looking for the biggest paydays out there. You're taking that kind of Derek Chisora approach where it's like, you know what, titles are great, but I want to get paid. I am a uh, performer that wants to get paid for my actions. And, Look, if you're Deontay Wilder, going to the UK at some point in the late fall, early winter, as things open up, it's probably your biggest payday too. Like White versus Wilder in the US, I'm not sure what kind of audience that draws. I mean, Wilder, or White rather, I don't think he's ever fought in the US. I think this would be, his plans would be his first, or if he has, it's nothing significant. Um, You know, but in the UK, that's a massive show. Like, that's a pay-per-view that probably sells out a 20,000, 30,000-seat arena. It's a massive worldwide fight. Uh, Eddie Hearn could probably get a boatload of money from DAZN to show it 
uh, th- that to me for both guys represents the most lucrative option outside of a legitimate heavyweight title shot. Yeah, that, I mean that that's a potential stadium fight. You know, maybe a smaller stadium, but the, yeah, I, I think you're you're bang on. I think that's a thirty thousand, forty thousand type seed fight. And then the storylines are built in. It's it's Deontay Wilder, you know, getting revenge on a, on a UK fighter and then looking towards the the winner of, of Fury Joshua or for Dillian White, it's kind of putting the nail in the coffin for Deontay Wilder and him looking towards the winner of Fury Joshua. If there's enough money out there, I mean, I would hope that you're right. I hope that these guys see the value in just taking that big kind of spectacle fight and taking that payday and not just waiting out this kind of sanctioning body game. Yeah, it's like, you know, titles are great, but don't you want the money? Like, I mean, you're, yeah. I mean especially if you're like, if Wilder and White, both guys are, like, I don't know what stage of their career they're on. We're on the back half, both of them, uh, of their careers. And you want to collect as many big checks as you can. And that's a massive check, win or lose, um, facing each other. So hopefully politics don't stop that fight from happening if they can get in their room. It's clear Eddie Hearn wants that fight to happen, and Eddie Hearn's bankrolled pretty big still uh, by DAZN. So we'll see if that comes to pass. Uh, let's talk about the fight this weekend, Corey, where you've got Jamel Herring and Carl Frampton fighting for Herring's 130-pound title. Herring is going into this fight as the underdog. Uh, Frampton's a good fighter, but he has uh, rarely fought above 126 pounds. Uh, but he is going into this fight as the betting favorite. So I guess let's start there. Are you surprised that Carl Frampton is the favorite going into this fight? I think that this speaks to kind of the perception of Jamel Herring throughout his career. Because, you know, when when you and I were talking offline about what we were going to talk about, I looked into it. I was like, huh, like I have always felt like Herring has kind of been underestimated and undervalued that, that he's been the underdog. But the reality is that he's only been the betting underdog one time against Denis Shafikov when he lost for the first time in his pro career. And now for the second time against Carl Frampton, although right before we came on to, uh, uh, to talk about this, the betters had actually bet him down to an even money fight. But <laughs> I, I think that there is something there with Herring and the fact that he lost two fights before he really reached world title caliber. And I think there is this perception that fighters are unable to improve in terms of the, the, the boxing public. That when we see a guy lose for the first time, it's not like we write him off, but that's ingrained in our minds forever. And the reality is that when Jamel Herring hooked up with Bo Mack and took his career in, in a completely different direction, he became a better fighter, he became a more complete fighter, he became a smarter fighter. So I think that you have to forget about those two early, not early career losses, but the, the two losses on, on the record of Jamel Herring, forget about those because this is a very different fighter. And I think that for me, I'm I'm more worried about what what Carl Frampton is going to show up. I think that to me, I I am expecting Herring to win, and I'm looking for Carl Frampton to prove me wrong. I think there are two variables in this fight that I'm looking at. One, look, I think the biggest reason that Herring is or was an underdog going at this fight are how he performed in his last two. You had. A fight against Lamont Roach. Lamont Roach is fine. He's a solid prospect slash contender. But I think going in, I think there was an expectation that Herring would win that fight more convincingly. Then, fast forward to facing Jonathan Akendo, and that fight ended in disqualification in the eighth round. I think there was also... there was A, a lot of people I've talked to thought Herring should have done more in that fight as well. Didn't look great uh, in that fight. You throw in the fact that maybe this is not something that odds makers take into account, but... Carl Frampton brought this up. Jamel Herring got to Dubai on Friday. 
Like, that seems mm. like a pretty late-in-the-game trip to get to Dubai. What I was told, Corey, incredibly, like, Frampton had to get his visa renewed before he flew there. Like, oh, no, sorry, Herring had to get his visa renewed before he flew there. Like, Jamel, got to have someone in your team taking care of this stuff. Like, you can't, you can't be messing around with, like, the visa. Uh, so that delayed his uh, eventual trip uh, out to Dubai. So... I think that all that has stuff to do. I'm with you, though. I think Herring is a lot better than people think. I know he is consistently uh, overlooked as a top fighter, but how he's kind of pulled himself out of you know what he was when the PBC cut him. When he lost a couple of fights, he looked like he was just going to disappear into the boxing vagabond uh, landscape. How he was able to do that with Bomac, with top rank, winning a world title, uh, I think he's better than than people are giving him credit for. And I think we do have to remember there's going to be a big size advantage in the ring on this night. I mean, Frampton's going to give up about five inches in height. Again, he's not that familiar with this 130-pound weight class, whereas Herring has lived there uh, for, for several years now. I, I just think Herring is, if he's still an underdog come fight night, he is a very, very live underdog. Oh, 100%. And remember that, that Herring was basically a light... He's a lightweight who came down. So yeah. physically, Jamel Herring, you mentioned the five-inch height advantage, but he's also just built a lot bigger than Carl Frampton. And Frampton has been in a lot of wars. And you saw what happened to the guy that last beat him, Josh Harrington, suddenly shows up against Lara, and it looked like you know the, that tread had come off the tires. And here's the guy who lost to him, now coming back against a much larger fighter, you start to worry about whether that will be the same outcome for Frampton. But I, I do think that going back to the kind of logistical issues, there's something there when it comes to Frampton and his experience mm -hmm. in big fights. He's had a lot of them. And, you know, Herring, you know, showing up a little bit later than maybe you'd want him to do. Uh, the, That's really the late. Issues. Like, there are guys that That's come really from... really late. Come from, the guys come from Mexico to the U.S. like earlier than what Jamel Herring went from the right, U.S. Right. to Dubai. Like, that is real. Right. For people that don't quite get it, that is... That's a 10-hour time change. A climate that is entirely different than what you're used to in the Midwest. It's like 90-plus degrees, I think, over in Dubai right now. Like, it's... It's different, man, or whatever the temperature. It's different um, over there. So to go in just a week plus before your fight, uh, th that to me could be a variable that that is that we're talking about on Sunday morning. Yeah, and maybe that's one of those you know those those veteran intangibles we always talk about. Frampton didn't make that mistake. You know, he, he's been there for a little while, but maybe you know uh, Jamel Herring. He's a Marine. He's used to traveling the world and and fighting. Maybe. Maybe it won't be an issue for him, but I think that that is a concern. But I think that my concerns about Frampton and the size disadvantage and the tread left on his tires still outweigh what I'm worried about when it comes to those logistics. 90 degrees even in uh, Dubai right now. So Wow. All right. Right, right on point for, <laughs> for the month of March. Uh, quickly, I want to ask you about what we saw Wednesday morning in the U.S. Tim Zhu, the son of Kostya Zhu, who... Uh, has been starting to make a name for himself uh, in Australia over the last uh, couple of years. He stops Dennis Hogan in the fifth round. Dennis Hogan is a somewhat familiar name to people in the U.S. He fought a very tough fight against Jaime Munguia at 154. He was stopped by Jamal Charlo at 160, uh, but is uh, a durable, generally said a durable guy. Got stopped in the fifth round by Tim Zhu. I mean, you've seen some of Tim Zhu over the last couple of years. Like, uh, it, you know, oftentimes with these, you know, sons of legends, and I'm looking at you, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., they don't live up to expectations. But is is Tim Zhu the real deal? 
think he is. And and I'm with you. I I look at fighters with a lot of doubt when I see them come into the sport. And yeah, they, they are the son of someone famous. I think of them as attractions. And I thought that Zoo would probably take a lot longer to develop than he has. But his performance this morning, you know, I watched it this morning, that, that beautiful uppercut to end that fight. I mean, that wasn't just a younger, fresher fighter bullying over someone that maybe had more skill than him. That was a that looked like a guy who has the elite kind of skills to compete with guys towards the top of the vision, the division. Maybe not right now, but pretty soon. I, I think that Zoo will have some logistical issues. I think right now, I don't know if he can leave Australia, and people certainly can't come into it. So he might have to fight the uh, the old timers tour. Uh, maybe he could pick Saki Obika off the uh, the undercard. That was a fun fight. That was that was a remarkably fight. fun fight. Saki Obika stands Solomon. In great shape. In great wow, shape. Better shape than I'm in. That's yeah. for sure. That's <laughs> so. like those guys were were lean and mean for that fight. They were throwing bombs too. The last two rounds, I was I was into it, man. Like that wasn't exhibition stuff. That was a real fight. How intrigued is Sergio uh, watching stuff? Oh, Sergio, like, that. like he just sees the money. Like Sergio is like Sergio is like three Coronas away from calling out Delahoy <laughs> on Twitter, like and just like making like, <laughs> cell phone videos to call out Delahoy. He wants that fight so bad he can taste it. He's looking at his phone, looking for that two one three area code to pop up, and hoping it's Delahoy on the other end of the line. Well, he's got. He better get in line because Rafael Marquez is uh, uh, is just really pushing for that. Uh, oh, we're gonna have the, the battle of the uh, of the network commentators. Saki Obika is pushing for it. Like he won. He called <laughs> out Delahoya. Like he called Delahoya. <laughs> it's like I like okay. It's Saki Obika Delahoya at whatever weight you want to do it at. But uh, yeah, I'm with you on Tim Zoo. Like I don't think there's any huge rush either. Like let him stay in Australia no. until this thing breaks i know top rank is kind of salivating at the idea of promoting him stateside because you know kasha zoo is a pretty familiar name uh to u.s boxing fans and you know if you're that entertaining you're gonna draw a fan base like there there are still you know i don't know what you think about this but i see definite holes in his game like he is he's wide stance sometimes his arms are off and out like he can get hit and i think he's got to clean some stuff up when he goes up against bigger punchers but he is aggressive and that uppercut that he dropped Dennis Hogan with, that came out of nowhere. That was just a bomb that Hogan didn't see coming and put him flat on his back. It, it's funny you mentioned his stand. And by the way, I meant Raul Marquez, not to, not Rafael Marquez. We I was going to say, I'm like, I didn't hear Rafael Marquez. was a little bit small to be, to be coming back for that. But it's funny you mentioned the stance of Zoo. That's very much, that's his dad's stance, mm-hmm. right? That wide, you know, really, really wide base, the hands out here. I think that a lot of that is just kind of ingrained in him from his father. And his father had holes like that. But his father's calling card is that he was in better shape than everyone that he ever stepped in the ring with. He was an absolute maniac in the gym. Uh, and he could put his punches together. And so far, Zoo is showing those hallmarks, and he's showing you know some sublime skill, like with that uppercut. Nah, he's he's fun to watch, and I think if you uh, give him some time, let him keep developing, you can see him challenging for world titles uh, very soon. Plus, you know, you mentioned you know fighting outside of Australia. Uh, I, I think promoters will want to go to Australia if he keeps drawing crowds, which he will. Like, you'll bring him to Australia. I mean, Teofimo Lopez was desperate to go to Australia to fight George Cambosis because they thought they could make some real money uh, on that fight. Imagine what Tim Zhu could do is he starts climbing the ladder and, you know, putting himself closer to title contention. You'll, you'll have guys want to come there. That's uh, and that'll be, that'll be an interesting era if Zhu becomes a big enough star where he just brings everyone to him, where he doesn't have to come to America, where people will, will chase Tim Zhu because he could put 30,000, 40,000 people at a football stadium like Jim, Jeff Orn did once or twice. I mean, ch- Maybe, you know? Ch- chase the money, right? Like how many, 
he's junior middleweight, right? That was a junior middleweight fight on mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. So how many junior middleweights are drawing a crowd? Like any? <laughs> Does anybody at 154 like draw? <laughs> I mean, I was at the Jamel Charlo Tony Harrison fight in Ontario, California, like a year and a half ago. Like, come on. Like you, you go where the money is, man. And if the money's in Australia, that same money spends just as much as it does in America. So Well, and it it also like those fights are a lot it's a lot cooler to watch a stadium fight in Australia than it is to watch some a thousand people in a in a in a casino in California. Yeah. There's always this insistence that we have to bring big fights to the United States. No, you don't. You can take them wherever you want. And and for Zoo, if I'm him, I would I would stand firm. I'm, like, I'm the draw. I have a fan base here. You you come to me. Yeah, I'm not coming to you know Florida to go to the Hard Rock Seminole Casino to fight somebody down there. <laughs> like I'm I'm fighting in front of twenty thousand you know indoors or fifty thousand outdoors. You want to fight me? Right. You bring your exactly. ass to me. No question. Uh, Corey, great job, man. Always good to catch up with you. Hopefully, we see you outside of Canada at some point in the very near future, my friend. Well, if not, you got. I'm the draw. People have to come to me, right? I'm like, <laughs> people I have to come to Canada. I don't think you're quite there yet. <laughs> not there yet. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it. And I'll see you next week. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.